This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Everyone, it's time once again for Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are the voice of Ratio Christi. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program where you, we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. Well, Kirk, today we are going to be talking very appropriately about the resurrection. I've been looking at the newspaper the past couple of days, and I find it interesting the way uh, they usually run articles about uh, Easter celebrations in the area and about how everybody's going to church and everything. And they always preface their news articles with, Christians believe, you know, that Jesus died on Friday and he was resurrected on Sunday and everything. And every time I read that, I think, you know, it sounds to me like when they put it that way, they're trying to make Christianity sound like any other religion. It's like, well, this is something that some people believe, and some people believe something else. But the thing that bothers me is that they never say, well, history records that Jesus died on Friday, or, you know, they never treat it as history or as anything real. It's just a belief. <laughs> well, anyway, um, today we are hoping to have with us a guest. Uh, his name is Eric Shabbat, and uh, he's going to be talking to us about the resurrection, appropriately enough, since we're airing this on Easter Sunday. And uh, he's got quite a uh, background here. I was uh, Keith sent me a, uh, a little bio of him here, and he's, uh, he's quite a uh, uh, scholar in uh, the Bible. He's been educated at Southern Evangelical Seminary. Uh, it says here he's a membership of the Evangelical Philosophical Society. He's appeared on a number of uh, radio shows with uh, people like Alex McFarland, Ryan Dobson, Bob Burney, if any of you are familiar with those names. Uh, he's had quite a bit of speaking experience uh, in different uh, venues. He's also an instructor at the Messianic Studies Institute which if you'd like to uh, find out more information about that, you can check out their website at www.messianicstudiesinstitute.org. And let's see, what else does it say here? It says that uh, he teaches a number of courses at that institute. Some of them are the Jewish essence of the faith, uh, the early understanding of the Messiah. He teaches Messianic apologetics and... uh, the Resurrection, Myth or Fact, which we hope he's going to be talking to us today about. Got a couple of uh, emails and some news items. Okay. Kirk, you saw this joke that Cowboy Bob sent us? 
Which we've one? Been, <laughs> we've been sending. We've been talking about that thought experiment that Rene Descartes did. I think, therefore, I am. Okay. So right. Cowboy Bob sends this. Descartes was at a restaurant, and the waiter asked him, "Would you like the soup?" Descartes took a moment and said, "I think not," and promptly disappeared. <laughs> think <laughs> so about that, from listeners. Cowboy Bob, so we thank him for humor, since we were talking about Descartes' little thought experiment there a few weeks back. Of course, he's the one who said, I think, therefore I am. Exactly. So, so if you get the joke, he said, I think not, and he disappeared. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> All right. Well, we got an interesting email from someone who apparently is a Christian. Was I'll just uh, read what he says. It's nice and short. I was just listening to your three-part podcast where you responded to a long email. Mine is shorter. <laughs> no, And he says, no junk DNA. What about junk genes? In other words, when genes mutate, don't they in some sense meet the junk info challenge by Darwinists? Oh, you mean you're not talking about those ripped genes that teenagers wear all the time? Junk yeah, genes? Yeah, not, not that kind of junk genes. Oh, okay, I got you. <laughs> so I answered him. I said, well, Mike, your email might be a little too short since I'm not entirely sure what you mean. How or why are you distinguishing junk DNA from junk genes? If a gene mutates and ceases to function, then it is, in a sense, now junk. I don't recall saying that there is literally no junk DNA, but certainly most of what was once thought to be junk is now known to be functional in regulatory pathways, etc. The genome in no way matches the junk-littered expectations of the Darwinist. I have no idea what you're referring to by junk info challenge by Darwinists. And I said, sorry, that's the best I can do. Then he answered me back. This part I thought was interesting also. He says, I'm trying to think as a Darwinist, which is difficult. You have to slice and dice the book of nature, parsing sentences in unrealistic ways in order to conclude that natural selection can produce the results that are readily observable to one and all. With that said... One has to ask the question, why are there mutated genes? Is that or is that not part of the design? If it's not part of the design, why can some be beneficial? If they're beneficial only by chance, is that evidence for design or evolution? You say there's no, not literally no junk DNA, put in simple terms, why would junk genes not be just more junk DNA evidence of evolution? I get that the ratio of beneficial to non-beneficial mutations is dramatic, but given we don't know what we don't know, why isn't it possible that junk genes are washed out of the system through extinction or some other mechanism that we've yet to discover? And that's from Mike. So, I answered in this way, uh, hi Mike, part of the problem is that many changes to the DNA that are not accidental are still called mutations. It was once thought that any change to the DNA was the result of a copying error. We now know that many of the changes are not accidental, including the turning on and off of genes. The incredible amount of activity in the nucleus and the weak bonds that are necessary make it likely that errors will creep in. And these are usually corrected by the incredible error-correcting mechanisms, but sometimes they are missed. This type of accidental change can only be beneficial if the destruction of the gene happens to be beneficial, like a retreating army blowing up a bridge so that the enemy cannot follow, 
or a bacteria no longer being able to digest the antibiotic that would kill it. Obviously, this is evidence for entropy and not for evolution. Just because it happens by chance doesn't mean it's evidence for evolution. It's actually evidence for entropy. There may indeed be ways that the organism can wash out these mutations, which would return it to its original type. And again, no evolution here. So I recommended that he listen to the podcast, How Life Works, and said, hope that helps. So that is from our listener, Mike. Okay. And then uh, we had that news item. I think you sent me to the this to me, didn't you, Kirk? This is one from about global warming. I may Maybe have. somebody else sent it to me. But, Not uh, recently. Okay. So, so this came a couple weeks ago. It's about a team of scientists led by a geochemist, uh, Zun Li Lu, from Syracuse University in New York State. And he found that the medieval warm period, which occurred approximately 500 to 1,000 years ago, was not just confined to Europe. So apparently the global warming people were saying that this warm period that we knew about historically was just confined to Europe. And he's, he has shown now that, in fact, it extended all the way down to Antarctica, which means that the entire Earth has already experienced global warming without the aid of human carbon dioxide emissions. Hmm. So uh, let's see. He says they. It says they studied ikaite. Ikaite, I believe, is how it's pronounced. Crystals from sediment cores drilled off the coast of Antarctica and uh, layers that were deposited over the past two thousand years. And they were able to document the both the little ice age uh, that occurred approximately three hundred to five hundred years ago and the medieval warm period. So it was not confined only to. Europe. It was also uh, down in Antarctica. Hmm. So this was published in the Journal of Earth and Planetary Science Letters. So it's sad that we have to keep correcting people on this global warming thing, but it just continues, I guess, because it's beneficial politically to the left. So they keep pushing pushing this idea, but, uh, but the, the, it is not really true. The thing I don't understand about all this is even if if you grant their point of view, if you say, okay, we're putting too much carbon dioxide into the uh, air because of our cars and all that, and it's causing you know the temperature of the earth to go up a couple of degrees, what do they expect us to do about it? Do they expect us to go back to living like we did in the Stone Age? Or uh, yeah, pretty much, pretty much they do. Uh, some of the legislation that I've seen, even in my small town that I live in, they want to bring the CO2 emissions down to 80% of 1980 levels. So not just 20% reduction off of today's levels, but 20% reduction off of 1980 levels. So uh, yeah, they're they're talking about serious and drastic cuts to carbon, which as we know from past shows hasn't even, isn't even the main warming gas. The main warming gas is water vapor, but can't ban that. Right. And I hear that every time a volcano erupts, it puts more uh, junk into the air than we put in the air, you know, human beings in 100 years. Yep, yep. And yet the Earth finds a way to recover from that when it happens. Well, you know, when you don't believe in God, uh, you'll believe anything. (laughs) Isn't that the Um, truth? Well... Well, I think uh, we're done with our preliminaries, so, and we've already interest, uh, introduced Eric Chabot, but, uh, so let me just welcome Eric to Evidence for Faith. Hey, how are you? It's great to be here today. Good, Eric. Yeah, thanks so, so much for having me on today. 
Well, I have nope. to apologize, too, for mispronouncing your name. I said Shabbat. Oh, you know what? Everyone mispronounces my name. It's French, and it's got that bizarre ending where the T's silent, so don't worry about it. <laughs> that's because I'm looking at it written on a, on a paper, and that's what it looks like. Right. It's a tricky name. I have, that happens all the time, so no problem. Okay. <laughs> well, Eric, happy Easter to you. Same to you. Happy Easter to our listeners. We thought that it would be very appropriate today to talk about the resurrection. Hence, we have brought Eric Chabot on. Eric, I'm particularly interested in in the angle that you bring to this because you're an instructor at the Messianic Studies Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about that institute and a little bit about your work? Sure. Uh, The Messianic Studies Institute is located here in Columbus, Ohio, and really what we do is specialize in adult education, and we give a unique kind of Messianic perspective. And what, what that means is that we provide... A lot of the Jewish background uh, to the Gospels and to the learning behind Christianity, a lot of the Jewish roots topics. We also offer Hebrew, uh, actually we offer Greek, too. And just bringing in a lot of good speakers and scholars. We've had Craig Evans here. We've had uh, Craig Kinnear here. We've had some really fantastic speakers over the last few years. And just try to educate the, over, the uh, Christian community about the Jewish background of their faith and a lot of those topics at hand. Now, do you do—I was at a— Seder once, a Christian Messianic Seder. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you do that kind of thing also? Uh, yes, we do, and I personally do those myself. I just did one this morning in a church here uh, locally, and I've done about three or four of them this week. So what you do is uh, we, we go out to the churches and we just do Messiah and the Passover and explain how Jesus, is, uh, of course, is the Passover lamb and how you know he fulfills the uh, picture of redemption that God did with the Jewish people, bringing them out of the Exodus. So we do those quite frequently. It's a very, very uh, relevant topic and very popular as well. Yeah, for some of our listeners who maybe haven't done this, I really highly encourage this. I think, you know, they might be thinking, well, gee, that's kind of strange. Why, as a Christian, I celebrate Easter? Why in the world would I want to celebrate the Jewish Passover? But the really fascinating thing about this is that during the Passover that Jewish people do every year for, what, the past 3,000 years, there are actually these this hidden symbology about Jesus Christ. Is that right? Absolutely, because if you really look at the, the history of the Passover, it's a story of God redeeming the Jewish people out of Egypt. And, of course, we talk about the blood of the Lamb, how he instructed them to put the blood on the doorway or else the angel of death would come and, of course, bring that judgment. And really it's a picture of what, you know, our Lord would do eventually, how he'd be the suffering servant, come into the world and make atonement for the sins of humanity and how we have to have, uh, we have to trust in the Passover lamb today, of course, that being Jesus, so God will pass over our sins. Kirk, have you ever done one of these Messianic Passovers, Seders? No, I haven't, but it's interesting, uh, while you're talking about this, I'm thinking that uh, we had a guest speaker in our church this morning at uh, Linwood Community Church. His name is Tom Simcox, and he's with Jews for Jesus. Mm-hmm. And he his sermon was very close to what you're talking about here. He was telling us about how he had he's attended a number of Seder uh, dinners, and he was relating the Jewish perspective of the Messiah to uh, Jesus' resurrection. That's right. That's exactly what we do as well, so it's very similar. I, I actually do a lot of demonstrations with the food items as well, because sometimes Christians sit down this time here, they have a full meal, where they'll go through the Seder, and then they'll actually partake of a meal, and then 
you know, take the Jewish Seder and really talk about how it's all fulfilled in Christ, but it's more of a full meal where they sit down and eat. And I've done that as well. Very popular item. Well, Eric, let's uh, let's jump into the topic of the resurrection. A lot of Christians, I think, can understand and relate readily with Christmas and the birth of Christ, and uh, you know, it seems to be such a a Christian holiday. But Easter, I think, for some Christians, doesn't really mean all that much, and many people don't really see. I, I, I think they, they think maybe we as Christians should concentrate a little bit more on the moral teachings of Christ and not worry so much about some of the kind of ethereal aspects of Christianity. The more miraculous parts? Yeah, those kinds of things, you know, <laughs> and all that blood stuff. Is that really necessary for Christians? <laughs> Right. Well, I agree. You know, when I do ministry to high estate, when I do the campus ministry there and talk to students about Jesus, you know, it's interesting that most of them will say to me, well, you know, I really do like Jesus' moral teachings. I, I find them to be incredibly helpful, and I think they're good for humanity. But once you get into the resurrection, then you're entering into some other issues, and that's where you have to deal with his deity, talking about how he's not just another prophet or teacher, and how Obviously, if he rose from the dead, that's going to separate him from just being another Jewish rabbi in the first century, another Messianic figure, and a lot of people are very uncomfortable with that. So it is so important that we, as Christians, know why the resurrection matters, why it's true, and how to proclaim that in the culture around us. Not to mention, of course, without the resurrection, Christians uh, were all dead in our sins, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And of course, there's no present victory over sin in this life, because Jesus broke the power of sin when he rose from the dead. So there's so many factors that are tied in with the resurrection to the doctrinal tenets of Christianity we just can't go without looking at. That was the main point of uh, Tom Simcox's uh, sermon this morning. He said that uh, he's had people come up to him in the past and say, well, what's the big deal about the resurrection? Why is that so important anyway? And he said that his response is that without it, there's no salvation for sins. That's what's important about it. Right. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Rasho Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking about the resurrection with Eric Chabot, and Eric is also a campus outreach minister. Eric, tell us a little bit about your Rasho Christi group. Well, we planted a Rasho Christi chapter at Ohio State three years ago, and we were one of the earlier chapters after they had just started. I had been doing ministry at Ohio State for quite a few years, but just being on the campus, I saw the real need for apologetics, and saw a lot of Christians walking away from the faith. I saw a lot of skepticism, a lot of atheism, and just really felt that, you know, for a campus of 60,000 students, that, you know, how could we not have some sort of vital apologetics ministry or something that really meets that need? And then when I found out about Ratio Christi, I was like, well, we really should plant one here, and that's what we did. And we've really had a good, uh, very positive three years. We've had William Lane Craig come and lecture. We've had Frank Turk there twice. We had a debate with Michael Brown and Bart Ehrman. Michael Brown is a Messianic Jewish uh, believer and scholar, and everybody knows uh, hopefully who Bart Ehrman is, that the uh, well-known skeptic or agnostic that's written some popular books. And then we have, uh, we certainly are on a lot of panels, we do a lot of evangelism, a lot of discipleship, and we've uh, had a very productive three years, so I'm very excited with what God is doing there. Excellent. And you're having good turnouts for these kinds of events and things like that? Yes, we've, uh, we've really had almost four to 500 people, I'd say, for between the William Lane Craig and the Turk events and the debate, there generally averages about 450 to 500 
you know, so we're very happy with it. Wow, that's exciting. That's exciting. Well, let's uh, jump into some of the evidence. As you, so far, we've discussed the fact that without the resurrection, there isn't any real Christianity. So the Christian faith really lives or dies based on the resurrection. I know a lot of Christians would not like it to be that way. They'd, they'd like to think that, well, maybe, I, I remember talking to a Sunday school teacher, and he said that he always does a lesson about where he brings in a box of bones, and then he tells them that they, they have discovered the bones of Jesus. And so he, he, he wants to show them that even if we did discover the bones of Jesus, that Christianity could still survive past that. Any comments on, <laughs> on, on that kind of thinking? Well, we know that uh, it was certainly a few years ago, or four, four or five years ago, we had the attempt by James Cameron, you know, to try to find the bones of Jesus. He went off on that expedition in Israel, and that's what they tried to do, and they failed at it. So I would say it does make a big difference. Uh, if we found the bones of Jesus, then that certainly means that uh, we have a real problem with what the New Testament teaches, because the New Testament teaches pretty clearly that Jesus rose from the dead physically, you know, in a, in a bodily sense. And if he didn't do that, then, then the New Testament obviously is false. And so we're going to have some problems reconciling that with our faith. I mean, I, you know, we could always say, well, hey, why don't we just be kind of like Gnostic Christians? The Gnostics believe, you know, that the body's bad and just believe the spirit is all that matters, but uh, that's not a good alternative. <laughs> so we, we definitely, you know, a lot hinges on the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and we certainly don't, don't want to downplay that in any way. Well, let's begin to build an argument then for our listeners. If, if they were interested in this idea, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? How would it be possible to know that? After all, it supposedly happened 2,000 years ago. That's a really long time ago. How is it that we can expect that we can have any kind of reliable information to tell us whether such an event could have happened or not? Well, like you said, it is in the past, and just like with everything in history, we have to examine the evidence we have, and historians, being that that's what they do, is look at the past, they look at the documents, they look at the witnesses of the event, there's any eyewitness testimony, and they look at sometimes uh, what is called historical causation, you know, talking about where we see something happen like an effect in history, and then we ask what the cause is. And I think that's what we have to do at the resurrection. We have to look at the documents we have, which are the New Testament documents, and we look to see if there's any eyewitnesses to the event. We look at their credibility, whether they be telling the truth or not, and then look at the effect in history. We do see the birth of Christianity pre-70 A.D. Really, I'm talking very early, uh, the early Christian movement. We see that effect in history, and then we would just have to ask what the causes of that. Now, as Christians, we certainly believe that the resurrection is the uh, the birth of the movement, really caused the birth of the movement. So then we um, we can go from there. So we examine the evidence just like anything else in history. Look at those three factors, the written documents, the eyewitnesses, and then the cause of the event. And it's interesting today that there's three common points that a good majority of critical scholars and critical historians believe in about uh, the resurrection of Jesus, at least these three points you know, tied in with it, and that is, number one, uh, that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Uh, secondly, after his death, his disciples at least believed that they saw Jesus appear to them. And then thirdly, that Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, of course, had an experience that he saw the resurrected Christ. Those are three, what we call three uh, common facts, or what we sometimes, Mike Lacona, a New Testament historian, calls the historical bedrock. And then what we can do is kind of build our case from there and see what accounts 
really for number two and number three, what caused those experiences or the appearances to the disciples? And then we can go through a hypothesis and work our way to see the resurrection explains all the facts at hand. Well, let me, uh, I guess I'm thinking now about some of the questions that skeptics have asked us on the show and things that have come up in debate with atheists. So let me ask you to back up a little bit and let's first get rid of one of the objections that you'll hear right at the beginning sometimes, and that is that Jesus uh, isn't even really a historical figure. Do you want to address that? That right. is Jesus, uh, is he a historical figure or was he just uh, a myth, an invented myth? Well, sadly, I think with the internet, we still have some people living in the world that Jesus didn't exist, and I obviously think that that's incredibly problematic, and I think that we're going to be hearing a lot about a new book that just came out by uh, agnostic Bart Ehrman, and he, of course, is arguing that Jesus definitely existed, and he thinks that it's silly to even say that Jesus didn't exist, and he, as we know, he doesn't believe Jesus rose from the dead, but at least he believes, of course, that he existed and he was crucified. He, agree- he agrees with these three points that I just mentioned about Jesus' death by crucifixion, the other two points. Um, I really have not—I <laughs> mean, to say Jesus didn't exist, you would have to reject, I mean, a, mount, a mountain of evidence. I mean, to say that there's no way. We already have records of him in Josephus. We have records of him, uh, certainly, and the New Testament itself is good enough for me. I have no reason to believe that Paul's letters are incorrect, what he said about Jesus, and the Gospels are accurate. So I— I think for me personally, what I've done with people over the years, what I'm doing more recently, is trying to start really um, by asking them, you know, why is it that you think he didn't exist? And then generally what I find is that they really don't have a good case. It's generally just something they picked off off the Internet, right. uh, you know, and that's just not going to do the trick. You have to really engage critical scholarship. And I, like I said, Bart Ehrman, you know, who doesn't believe Jesus rose from the dead, certainly believes Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. John Dominic Crossan of the Jesus Seminar, who started that movement, said Jesus' crucifixion is as sure as anything. So at least he believes Jesus existed and he was crucified. So, you know, you have people that aren't even Christians saying that Jesus existed and that he was crucified. So I, I'm not sure why the other atheists can't seem to agree with them. Right, uh, right. Yeah. All right. Well, we wanted to sweep that out of the way, definitely. So we're dealing with a real historical Jesus, and we're dealing with somebody that people have written a lot about, both in the Bible and even historians outside of the Bible. But there's still that nagging issue that the atheist is going to bring up. He's going to say, look, there's no reason to accept anything miraculous about that's in the Bible. We don't need to accept any of the miracles of Jesus, and we don't need to accept the resurrection. After all, we know, because we live in a scientific age, that miracles are impossible. Yeah, that's a common objection, and it really can be traced back to David Hume, the uh, well-known skeptic from quite some time ago. Most of Hume's arguments really have carried on, and I think the majority of the arguments we hear against the resurrection can be traced back to him. And it's important to understand that there have been a lot of responses written to David Hume, a lot of good counter-arguments. And one thing that Hume said that has really carried on as far as an objection to the resurrection is the fact that we, you know, as humans, we don't regularly see resurrections. Obviously, it's not a common experience, which is true. We don't. But, you know, he tries to say that uh, we always should accept the evidence, uh, or we never should accept the evidence for a rare event. We only accept evidence for the events that are common, right, and common experience. Well... That's a problem right there, because you know and I know that history is going to be filled and is filled with rare events, right? There's no way that we could just say, well, let's just write it off ahead of time because the resurrection's a rare event. 
And, you know, Hume also said, you know, even if there is uh, eyewitness testimony or testimony of the witnesses to such an event as the resurrection, that we should reject that as well. But I find that to be a problem, because why, you know, why should I uh, just automatically write off the testimony of the witnesses? Can't they be telling the truth? So Hume's arguments are really what is carried on into today's, uh, you know, objections to the resurrection, but I don't think any of them are very plausible that they hold up under scrutiny. And uh, like I said, Hume thought the natural laws, you know, are immutable. Basically, they're unchangeable. Well, that just begs the question right there. Uh, You know, I can intervene into uh, a natural law today. If I throw my phone up in the air and catch it, I just intervened Uh, into the law of gravity and caught it. That's right. So why 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 can't a God that exists intervene into the laws of nature? Right. So it's really just begging the question, and, and we need to understand that there have been a lot of good responses to Hume. All right, so we've gotten rid of those two kind of um, prima facie objections. So now it turns out we have to really look at the evidence. Is, is there enough evidence to show that something as miraculous as a resurrection happened? I guess, first of all, let's, let's talk about resurrection and why, why we're using the word resurrection as opposed to something like maybe in some other religions where they have spiritual appearances, you know, why couldn't that have been the way things are? Right. Well, I think it's important to understand that the Jewish people at that time had some other categories that they could have used besides resurrection in the New Testament. They were certainly familiar with the term called translation. Uh, something. This is something that we see happening in the, in the Bible to, uh, like, Elijah, who was taken right up to God. Uh, we read about uh, these kinds of events, these translations, and the Jews had a category for that, so they, they were familiar with that, and they didn't use it. You know, they, they, they could have used it, just said, well, Jesus was taken up to God, uh, like Elijah, he was translated into heaven, but they didn't use that category, and they didn't use uh, really, you know, anything that they were familiar with uh, besides translation, which I say translation is the most common category. They they rejected anything except other than resurrection. And, you know, at that time, there's no evidence that said that they were expecting any kind of resurrection in the, in the uh, middle of history. It was supposed to happen at the end of history, where all of Israel is resurrected. There's a corporate resurrection. So it's very interesting that they were so emphatic about, you know, using that word resurrection to describe what happened to Jesus. And, uh, you know, so I think that's, uh, that's very relevant. And N.T. Wright's work... He wrote a book called The Resurrection of the Son of God, and he shows that, uh, you know, in that time period of Second Temple Judaism, that the word resurrection always meant a bodily, physical resurrection. And so I think that lends credence to the fact that that certainly what happened, that they did see a physical resurrection with Jesus, a material resurrection. And it does seem also from the Gospels that the not only were the apostles the disciples were hiding in fear, but but some of them even went back to their old jobs. Some of them were were back uh, fishing. Uh, doesn't seem like this is kind of a, a setup where they're, they're planning on how they can advance uh, a, a new religion. Well, that's right. They they certainly were not. From everything we see in the Gospels, they were they were definitely not expecting a, you know, resurrected Messiah, let alone a dying Messiah, was a problem for them, being Jews. They had a very difficult time with Jesus' crucifixion, and so I think that's one of the reasons that they had kind of gone back to their own, you know, their old jobs and said, well, forget it, you know, Jesus is not fulfilling the role of the Davidic king, he's not setting up the dynasty, he's not restoring Israel the way we want, and he died. Well, obviously, the resurrection is what, you know, kind of turned that around and got them to see, you know, that this He's been vindicated now, and he is certainly the Son of God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1 there. 
And that was the thing that kicked in their excitement and obviously caused them to go out and preach the gospel. I don't think Christianity could have really carried on if, uh, they, if Jesus had not been resurrected, because everything we know about these Messianic revolts at that time, uh, there were some Messianic revolts by other people where they tried to take over Rome, lead Israel to the glory days, but they were stomped out pretty quickly. And then the, the Jewish people go find someone else to follow. Well, these, these carried on a few more, but then finally, here comes Jesus, of course, he's crucified, and they say, well, you know, he must have been a failure like these other guys, but yet right. this one carries on and goes on for 2,000 years, much, much later, and also the rabbis have noticed that as well. They said, you know, what is it about the Messianic movement that Jesus started that has carried on? The other movements we've had in our history of our people have failed and really kind of died out very quickly. So yeah. that, that's very interesting. So their attitude would have been that the, the fact that, that Jesus was killed, and especially in the way he was killed, being crucified, being hung on a tree, which had a, a curse associated with it from the Old Testament, they would have assumed that this was essentially a sign that God had rejected this Messiah, just as the Muslims today don't believe that any good prophet, if you are a good person, God is not going to punish you in such a way. And so, since they hold that Jesus was a prophet, they claim that, that he wasn't crucified. So, this is the kind of reaction you're saying that the, the uh, disciples would have had, that that, that, that God has rejected this man. Right, well, from what we can see in the evidence in the Gospels and in Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians, we, you know, of course we read a crucified Messiah was a stumbling block, and you know, it's important to understand how horrendous Roman crucifixion was. I mean, it was for criminals, right, or slaves, right, or anybody to really cause a threat to Roman order or authority, and of course here's, you know, Jesus on this Roman, you know, on this stake, this execution stake, and you know, that was obviously a very difficult thing. It's, a, it's an obstacle for the Jewish people. Now, there is some literature in Judaism before Jesus came that, you know, there is a case for a figure making atonement, uh, you know, like in some of the extra-biblical literature, but nothing really uh, that says that that's really what the Messiah, you know, the actual the Messiah is going to do. Even Isaiah 53 is there. They didn't really understand it uh, till after Jesus died, obviously, that that passage had relevance to him. So it was a huge stumbling block for them to uh, accept a crucified Messiah, and of course we see in history, today, in Judaism, they still say the same thing, they will not accept Jesus as a Messiah because he died. I've talked to Jews about it to this day, and they won't accept him because he died. So, uh, so very similar to what the Muslims say. Right. Not much has changed, really, since the first century. Interesting. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking about the resurrection with Eric Chabot. Eric is a director of Ratio Christi. I'm sorry, Eric, what campus are you located at? We're at Beehive State University. Go Bucks. All right. <laughs> and we're talking about the resurrection. So, Eric, with that as the scenario, then, that as the backdrop, isn't it possible that the disciples were so despondent and so upset by all the proceedings that they could have imagined uh, that they saw Jesus as risen from the dead? Well, I don't think so. It is interesting that even skeptics will agree that the disciples had experiences. You know, I mentioned Bart Ehrman earlier. You know, he makes this comment. He says, we can say with complete certainty that some of his disciples at some later time insisted that he soon appeared to them, convincing them that he'd been raised from the dead. So you have skeptics even saying that the disciples experienced something, but 
what you're asking is really, could it have been like some sort of mind trick or some sort of hallucination? And I think that has a lot of problems because uh, really the hallucination hypothesis doesn't meet, uh, the, the resurrection, what happened, doesn't meet the criteria for a, what is called a hallucination because there's three things you have to have. You have to have an expectation, uh, that being they would have had expected Jesus to rise from the dead, which they weren't expecting, as you can see throughout the Gospels. That's the least thing they were expecting from what we can see. Secondly, there's an issue of emotional excitement. Uh, I don't see them really being emotionally excited about Jesus rising from the dead before he rose, right? They're obviously very despondent. Uh, three, they would have to be informed beforehand about some sort of idea of a Messiah who's going to rise from the dead, something in their literature, something there, but there's really nothing we can see that is explicitly stating that the Messiah is going to rise from the dead. Isaiah 53 is an okay passage, but it doesn't really explicitly say that the Messiah is going to rise from the dead. It's, a, it's, it's you know, about a vindication there, but that's not something they were obviously looking for. And then, you know, you just have so many problems with the hypothesis. And also, how do you psychoanalyze these guys in antiquity? I think it would be kind of hard to sit them down and kind of, you know, analyze their... Uh, analyze the psychology behind this. I mean, this was so long ago, and I think it's problematic for skeptics, skeptics to say, well, you know, Paul had some sort of conversion disorder, or Peter imagined it. I mean, that's a nice hypothesis, but the question is, how do you go about trying to psychoanalyze them? I think that's a real problem, and I also think that the, uh, the appearances are very varied on a wide variety of, of places, and I think to say they all had the same hallucination, different you know, periods would be problematic as well. They're all, you know, very uh, varied as far as where that Jesus appeared to them. And isn't it also true that if these guys did have hallucinations about this, all their enemies had to do was open up Jesus's tomb and bring his body out and say, "Look, here it is. You're wrong." That's but they right. Couldn't do that. Right. Right. Well, that's exactly right. The resurrection, the hallucination hypothesis doesn't explain the empty tomb, and that's something you would definitely have to account for as well. Right. So if you it. If you look at the facts, it doesn't seem to go along with the hallucination account. So the, I think the skeptic then will turn uh, to the automatic response. Well, then it wasn't hallucinations. They were actually inventing this. They were actually trying to deceive people, trying to create their own religion, like many of the mystery religions that they were familiar with from Roman soldiers and others. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were deliberately trying to fool people into this belief in the resurrection. Right. I think that has some problems as well, because from what we know about the mystery religions, those are after uh, 70 AD. They would have post-date early Christianity. So if anything, the mystery religions would probably borrow from the Christian story. You know, it wouldn't be the other way around. And then secondly, uh, to say the Jews, you know, that were raised on the Torah... Uh, learning about bearing false witness, learning about the value of uh, the testimony of two or three witnesses that it lays out in Deuteronomy and the Torah. They always had to have credible witnesses that have to tell the truth. I just have a hard time believing that these Jews would come together and make up a new religion. I mean, for what benefit would that, you know, be for, uh, from what I can see, especially Paul? From what everything we know about Paul as his education background and his pharisaical background, I have a really hard time believing that Paul would join some sort of, uh, you know, fake movement <laughs> that had been started, right. you know, made up. I mean, Paul was a very, very uh, wise rabbi. That I mean, he knew the Old Testament inside and out. He was, he was trained, and uh, it's just so far-fetched to say that they would make it up, and I, I don't see any motive behind it as well. But just look at all the terrific benefits they got out of creating this new religion. Peter got crucified upside down. Paul got beheaded. Um, 
you know, go through the list of all the disciples and the way that they were killed. They certainly got a lot of benefit out of that, didn't they? Right. Well, we really seem to see the early persecution start in Acts, and we, uh, you know, that's the earliest testimony we have, and I, I don't see really any case there of why they would make that up, and we see, you know, very on they had to, you know, it was life or death early on. Well, then, now we get to a position where the hallucination theory doesn't seem to work, because uh, if the Gospels are telling the truth about the mental condition of the, the disciples, it doesn't seem like that they were inclined to this kind of thing. And then if they weren't faking it, uh, and there's another example of, of one of the evidences against the idea of faking it is that they did put in things like that they went back to work, uh, you know, that they were afraid of being arrested themselves. And if you're making up a religion, that's one of the things you don't put in there is how I looked like a coward. You say, uh, no, 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 no. Ah, remember me? I was the one who always believed that Jesus would rise from the dead. I never said anything wrong. <laughs> yeah, and Peter certainly wouldn't have let the uh, story about him denying Christ three times get in there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so if if neither one of these really works, I've, I, Kirk and I debated a couple of atheists, and they jumped into this idea of cognitive dissonance. So it's not that they intentionally uh, created a religion, and it's not that they uh, as so much uh, had gone crazy as it was just a kind of a normal grieving process of cognitive dissonance. And, and uh, you know, the example might be given of Jehovah's Witnesses that predicted the end of the world— uh, in, what was it, the early 1900s, I think. And then when Jesus didn't come, they just changed the story because of cognitive dissonance and said, oh, well, he came spiritually. So what about that? Could it just be the normal grieving process? And, you know, they just didn't want to admit that they were following the wrong Messiah. And so they had, they essentially not intentionally, but just kind of were forced into this position of, uh, that, no, Jesus is really still alive. He he still really is the Messiah. Well, I think that kind of goes back to somewhat, as, you know, some sort of mental issue here, some sort of hallucination or their, a trick on their minds that you know, they talk themselves into it. And that would mean, of course, Jesus is still buried, uh, you know, in an empty tomb somewhere, and that you have to explain the empty tomb account again. We're back to that. Uh, but there's something else that I, I really have a hard time understanding with these He's, you know, they're trying to grasp for straws here. You have very early on, if you read in the Gospel, or you read it through Paul's letters, I'm sorry, in the book of Acts, you see very early on that a group of Jewish people are actually worshiping Jesus uh, in a sense that they're praying to him, they're, uh, you know, there's hymns to him, they're really fitting him into their worship. Now, these are Jews who are monotheists all their lives, and they are really starting to look at Jesus as, a, you know, as, as God incarnate, and Paul, of course, is doing this. Like, the First Corinthians 8, 6, you know, he says there's many gods and many lords, but there's one God and, you know, one Jesus, Jesus Christ is our Lord. You have Paul, you know, obviously worshiping Jesus very early on as well. So I'm trying to figure out how cognitive dissonance would lead a group of monotheistic Jews in the Second Temple period to start worshiping a Jewish man who was crucified. Now, that was unheard right. of in that time. There's no other Jews being worshipped at that time. I mean, uh, you know, it's unheard of. So, I, so it seems you know, like it would cause even worse cognitive dissonance if they were to do that. Right, right. You know, there's a, uh, a quote in a book uh, called The Jesus Legend, A Case for the Historical Reliability of the Gospels, or the Synoptic Tradition, and 
by Greg Boyd and Paul Eddy, and what they say is, during the reign of Pilate and Herod, uh, we find a Jewish movement arising that worships a recent contemporary alongside in a similar manner to Yahweh God. To call this development novel as a significant understatement, truth, it constitutes nothing less than a massive paradigm shift in the first century Palestinian Jewish religious worldview. And that's what I'm saying. How, what accounts for this paradigm shift in their worship? And I think without the resurrection, and you're just going to have a hard time explaining that. And cognitive dissonance won't. I just will not. I just don't think it's going to answer that issue. And so this, this whole thing about the um, disciples, you know, making this story up to cover up the fact that they, you know, this guy's dead, but no, he's not really. Um, that doesn't fit with Paul at all. Paul no. had no motivation whatsoever to uh, um, spread a story like that. That's right. right. That's right. That's right. Also, Absolutely. the. Um Jesus's brothers. We know that later on when Paul goes back to Jerusalem to speak to the leaders of the church of Jerusalem, that James, Jesus's brother, one who didn't believe in Jesus prior to this event, now he's a follower, in fact, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. That's can right. You, can you imagine the, uh, the uh, criticism that Paul got from his fellow, you know, Jews, you know, and the the Pharisees and whatever. Here's a guy who was persecuting Christians, and all of a sudden he turns around and he says, now I believe this. Yeah, he seemed like he was on the fast track to success in uh, Pharisaical hierarchy. Right. You know, picture him sitting down and thinking, well, you know, what's going to be the effect of this if I turn around and start believing in this? Oh, I think I'll do this because it'll cause me all kinds of benefits with my friends. No, they, you know, they'd all have the opposite effect. Right. That's exactly right. We never want to take Paul's conversion as a light, as something, you know, lightly. And that's a very, you know, that's a big change from a guy that was well known in his own community, a Pharisee, and then to have that major change. We're not saying just because. You know, he's, uh, you know, people change religions today, but you have to get the context of Paul's entire background to appreciate it. Sure. I mean, right. he must have known that most of his friends and acquaintances were going to reject him once he told them, oh, I believe in this now. That's right. That's right. I find the cognitive dissonance explanation to be pretty ad hoc. <laughs> if you ask me, it's pretty, it's a big stretch. So. Eric, you talked about the use of the term Lord. Maybe with your background in Messianic and Jewish studies, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about why was that significant? You know, uh, from this vantage point from today, uh, looking back, it doesn't seem like that's so significant that they would call Jesus Lord. Well, it is. Yeah, it is significant. Uh, You know, today it's interesting. You talk to Jewish people and you tell them that Jesus is Lord we use that word, obviously they're horrified because it's idolatry to them. Uh, they view that as a uh, anything saying a, a man's a deity, let alone Jesus, is still idolatry in Judaism. And that was very similar to that time period of Paul. I mean, to use the word Lord that they knew in Hebrew was Adonai, to call God Lord was Adonai in Hebrew, to, you know, put that title on Jesus. And, you know, of course, it was written in Greek, the New Testament, you know, was something that uh, was not common at that time, you know, it's a huge transformation of their understanding of Christ. And when Paul uses that word, you know, that is, here's a monotheistic Jewish man who's worshipped one God all his life, and now he's calling Jesus Lord. First Corinthians 8, you know, verses 5, 6 there, that is something that is a massive paradigm shift in his behavior. And if you read that passage, he's really re-quoting what's called the Shema, which in, is from Deuteronomy 6. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. But yet now, He's fitting Jesus into that context. He's saying, there's one God, 
and one Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. So that is just, you know, there's some sort of explanation has to be given for the early worship that is, you know, has happened there, some sort of explanation. So he wasn't just using the word Lord as like we would say, you know, somebody is a, a kind of a master or, you know, a kingly or, you know, lordly. It's not that kind of Lord that no, he's talking because, about. Because in, when you think of the word Messiah, uh, the Messiah doesn't necessarily uh, mean that someone's divine. A Messiah was somebody you could be a prophet, priest, or king, but not necessarily divine. Um, you know, some people were anointed in the Old Testament, but they weren't divine, right? But... Mm-hmm. So when you put that word Lord on there, on top of Jesus, that is meaning that he is different than just another Messianic figure. You know, he, this means that there's something that uh, is speaking to his deity when you're using that word Lord on him. No, no Messianic figure was called Lord, you know what I mean? So that is something that Paul understands that Jesus really is, you know, the equivalent of being the Lord, you know, the Lord of the Old Testament, the God incarnate, right? So I, Paul, you know, for Paul, that's very significant. Now, you mentioned that when you've uh, witnessed to Jewish people that they are just horrified with the idea that the Messiah could die, but we just recently on the show covered the Daniel 9 prophecy, and it seems, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I've been told that that is the only verse in the Old Testament that actually names the Messiah and, and uses the word Amashiach in it. And it does say that he would be cut off. Right. Well, that is a very significant passage. Um, but it's important to understand when we look at that word Messiah in the Old Testament, it, it, as, I, as you just said, it means, it means anointed one. Uh, you know, so if someone was anointed in a sense, or anointed with oil or anointed for a task by God, uh, such as King David or a prophet or a priest, uh, even Cyrus and Isaiah, he was anointed. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean they're the Messiah with the capital M. You know, so you could be like a Messianic figure, but not necessarily be Messiah. So I would say the Daniel 9 passage is the probably the only one that really does, uh, it does speak of a Messiah being cut off, but the problem is that no matter, even if that passage or Isaiah 53 was the, you know, the one pa- another passage we might think of that maybe speak of a Messiah dying, if they're so obvious that Messiah is going to die, if it's so obvious in those passages, why is it that the Jews at the time of Jesus don't understand it? They seem to be not understanding that Jesus was going to die. Why wouldn't they say to him, hey, I read Daniel 9, it said you're going to be cut off, right? This is what's supposed to happen. Or, you know, I read Isaiah 53, and you're supposed to suffer and die. Well, I don't, I don't see that happening in the Gospels. They seem to be not understanding Jesus' death every time he explains it to them. So I guess... You know, the question is whether, you know, what's the connection there, and I, I think that's an issue, you know, because I certainly would agree those passages speak to a dying Messiah, but not, it doesn't, isn't the way the early Christians understood them when they saw, early, you know, Jewish people when they saw Jesus. Gotcha. So, yeah. All right. Well, Eric Chabot, it's been a pleasure having you on Evidence for Faith. We appreciate you being to come on, being able to come on and talk to us about the evidences for the resurrection. Well, thank you. It's a privilege to be here. You guys have a great Easter. Thank you. You too. You have been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. If you would like for Kirk or I to speak at your church or event, you can email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. Please join us again next week for more reasons to believe, and always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.